Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Evans History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 36, The Bible Commentary. Last time we finished up our little two-parter on how the church reacted to Wheeland and Short's 1888 re-examined book. The too-long-didn't-read version is, well, they thought Wheeland and Short were wrong. But Wheeland and Short went back to Africa where they were missionaries and everyone kind of thought that was that. The too-long-didn't-read version of that is, the church was wrong, it would rise again, so just put a pin in that because we're going to get back to that later. For now, we're going to talk about the SDA Bible Commentary. John D. Snyder tells the story of William L. Stidger, who was considered the most famous American preacher in the 1930s. Stidger was speaking to a group of preachers and said that he reads, on average, a book every single day. Now, an old preacher in the audience stood up to challenge Stidger, saying, quote, Young fellow, you say that you read a book a day, which I doubt, but all I gotta say is that the average preacher hereabouts doesn't read a book a month, end quote. The old man sat down. Stidger replied, quote, my brother, that is exactly why he would be an average preacher, end quote. Now, John Snyder was the Review and Herald's book editor. You know how you meet a person and you see them doing their job and you think, that person was born for this job, right? Like Winston Churchill at the helm of the British Empire during World War II. It's like, that guy was born for this particular job. John Snyder was born to be the Review and Herald's book editor. John Snyder loved books. Writing to his own group of preachers in the ministry, Snyder noted how the Apostle Paul told Timothy to bring his old coat, but especially the books, Paul said. In books, Snyder told the preachers, quote, we have the richest treasures of the earth. We value them not so much for what we see in them as for what we see through them, end quote. Snyder believed good books make for good preachers. He invoked John Ruskin's memorable definition of a sermon as 30 minutes to wake the dead. And while personality and creativity make for popular preachers, deep reading makes for great preaching. The Sabbath sermon, Snyder wrote, will always betray where and how the preacher has spent his week. Now, anticipating the timeless objection that we preachers are simply too busy to read much, Snyder gave his response to the preachers. His response was to remind them of Thomas Akempis and how his, quote, watchword in a nook with a book has drawn to him many companions and imitators, of whom I may be last and least, but I am one. For from strenuous toil, from social intercourse, and from journeyings constantly renewed, I always return with eager expectancy to the nook and the book, and they have not failed me yet. End quote. Books are a tool to shape great preaching. But anyone who reads Snyder's words to the Adventist ministry can tell that this was about more than tools. This was love pure and simple. The same month his article in the ministry appeared, Snyder's own book came out. It was called, You Might Be Surprised to Learn, I Love Books. I kid you not. The Review and Herald published it, and it went viral, as we cool kids would say. It went through 21 printings in its first 20 years and sold more than 250,000 copies. It's cheaper for to print books today, of course. It's easier for them to kind of catch on and spread today, but selling 250,000 copies of a book is still a hugely impressive feat today. This wasn't a book the Adventist Cull Porter Legion was taking door to door. This wasn't an Ellen White book, which Adventists, you know, they kind of feel obligated I should own that one. It went viral because it was an Adventist book that became popular outside of Adventism, and there's just not a whole lot of those. So you can find newspaper articles from across America well into the 1980s, 40 years after it was first published, talking about Snyder's book. Jerry Mitchell, who was an eye surgeon in Fort Worth, Texas, retired at the age of 52. A reporter found him helping at a book fair 10 years later. Why? Well, the reporter got the scoop. 
Quote, why did I retire early? Here, scan this book and you'll see. The reporter writes, he produced a 1946 edition of John D. Snyder's I Love Books. End quote. And the rest of the article was about Mitchell's favorite quotations from Snyder's book. A Detroit, Michigan book club newsletter claimed that I Love Books, quote, was written to overcome the disapproval of fiction fostered by Seventh-day Adventist leader Ellen White, end quote. Now, I imagine Snyder would be horrified by that take. I Love Books continues the Adventist tradition of denouncing cheap fiction, but Snyder did celebrate what he called imaginative literature, which, is, I mean, honestly, it's just fiction with good morals. <laughs> After all, Snyder wrote, quoting Alma E. McKibben, Quote, all truth is of God given by revelation. Every word written or spoken by man in whatever literary form he may be moved to express himself, if it be truth, is helpful and beneficial. A story is neither good or bad simply because it is a story, but because of what it teaches, end quote. Content, not genre, is what matters. And honestly, if you ask me, I don't think Ellen White would have disagreed with that. All of this is to say that when we talk about the story of the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, we have to talk a little about its creator, John D. Snyder, or J.D., as his friends called him. The commentary wasn't the brainchild of a theologian or a church administrator. It wasn't created to meet some theological controversy that was raging at the moment, or because the academics were just kind of getting bored in their ivory towers. It came into being because a book department manager at a publishing company loved books. Well, also because he kept getting requests for some old non-Avenist commentaries that just, you know, they didn't interpret things the same way Avenist did. And while for decades, Avenist had been using those commentaries and just overlooking the, the parts that may disagree with them. I mean, we're in the 1950s here, right? Isn't it time we could publish our own? So after a hundred years, it was finally time. Now, some of you might wonder, why on earth it took so long? You know, why would they want to, why would the early Adventists want to rest on Methodist commentaries or Presbyterian commentaries or, or whatever, right? Like, why would they not be eager to say, hey, we're Adventists, we have our own interpretation of these things? Well, you know, Adventists had been using these commentaries, which were widespread among many denominations. Adam Clark was a Methodist. Matthew Henry was a Presbyterian. That didn't stop people who were not members of those churches from using their commentaries. They were popular beyond their borders. But, you know, wouldn't Adventists be quick to get rid of them once they had established their own interpretation on things? Now, it's worth remembering that early Adventists were in some ways pretty tolerant about this stuff. They were mature enough to realize, you know, that whatever. I'm just going to throw this out there. 95% of this commentary is good. 5% of it we disagree with. Y'all should be mature enough to tell the difference between the two. And we're not eager to, to you know, do all of this work to replace 5% of content we may disagree with. But Adventists did also have a commentary, right? Uriah Smith's Daniel and Revelation was the definitive interpretation of those two books for most Adventists. Ellen White's Conflict of the Ages series, you know, Desire of Ages, Great Controversy, those books was her spiritual commentary on the Bible. And it's probably fair to say that most Adventists use those books as commentaries to interpret the Bible. So it's not like they didn't have a commentary. And this isn't even to, to mention the Legion of Review articles that in, in general conference session presentations that Adventism's top preachers and writers had left behind. Adventists had commentaries. They had published records of their own interpretations of a lot of Scripture. Now, of course, this was a fragmented set of resources. Some of these things were, were out of print, right? You remember Whelan complaining that you couldn't get, um, you, you couldn't get uh, Wagner's glad tidings anymore, all right? Now, that wasn't a commentary per se, but it was just one among many books that were no longer being printed, um, let alone all the different review issues. If you didn't have them, I mean, you know, if you didn't have something from 1855, good luck. The SDA Bible Commentary, on the other hand, would be an up-to-date, all-in-one-place commentary. Seven volumes. And that, that part was new. And above all, it would be scholarly. Now, I don't think modern audiences can appreciate the significance of that word to people back then. Because, you know, we take 
we take something as being scholarly for granted. You know, we want scholarly analysis uh, in in many fields, whether it's medicine or theology or whatever. We rely upon this. But, you know, this was an age when, um, you know, Adventists had really only had PhDs for a few decades. Um, it's an age where we're not exactly sure what the value of having a scholarly community is. And, and, you know, what's wrong with what we already have had? What's wrong with James White's opinion on a text or, or Ellen White's writings on a text, right? So we, we take it for granted that scholarship is generally a good thing, um, but that's not an assumption necessarily that everyone would make back then, all right? Now, Adventist history has always had scholars, people we might call scholarly, like John Andrews, but it didn't have an active scholarly community until, I would argue, the 1940s. And that's not something I really want to argue strongly with somebody. Of course, you can find uh, groups of people gathering before then. But uh, it, it's in the 1940s where we have the Bible Research Fellowship. And that's when scholars are voluntarily gathering together to read papers, to critique papers, and and to you know get feedback about these things, right? It's, a, it's an era where scholarship is aware of itself in Adventism. And, uh, and they're trying to to band together and move forward together as a distinct, uh, I guess, class, for lack of a better word, within the Adventist church. So again, you know, we know Adventists have been getting their doctoral degrees in increasing numbers in the early 20th century, and Adventist schools were being accredited in the 1930s. But the idea of having a scholarly community is, is a decades-long project. That's not something you can just flip a light switch on and boom. You know, you, you've... You've got to encourage people to go get PhDs, and then those people need to kind of get their feet wet in that field, and they are going to go train other people, and, and those, those people are going to go get PhDs, and eventually you have enough people uh, who are who are kind of at this level, and I don't mean level like they're higher or lower than anybody else. I just mean, you know, they're, they're thinking this way. They're using this scholarly language that, that scholars outside the church are using. They're up to date on, on methods and things like that. It takes a while for that scholarly community to form, and it wasn't inevitable within Adventism that it would form. But we finally have it in the 1940s and the 1950s. The 1952 Bible Conference adopted a scholarly format, even if every presenter there wasn't a scholar. Right? Some of those presentations were a little more popular and not so scholarly. But it was, it was you know, it's the same kind of format. We're going to gather together. We're going to read papers. We're going to have questions on the papers. And we're going to have a break in between sessions. I mean, that's it. That's it. So we see that that's the first kind of real scholarly, like public general conference endorsed event, you know, official event in Adventism. Um, this was the age of the scholarly community, a community which is necessary if you want to produce a good verse by verse commentary in the Bible. There's something to be said about individuals who translate the Bible or individuals who write commentaries in the Bible. That's a, a different way to go. It's not a bad way to go. But if you if you want it to not take 100 years, you should probably gather some more people together um, and, and produce something as a scholarly community. So the SDA Bible Commentary was something of a coming out party for the Adventist scholarly community. It was a joint project, the first of many to come in the decades ahead. But Snyder couldn't manage a project of this magnitude by himself, and for that he turned to Francis D. Nickel. Nickel was a towering figure in Adventist publishing. Within a few years, he dropped a 600-page book defending William Miller, and then a 700-page book defending Ellen White. And he had only been out of college a few years when he debated the evolutionist Maynard Shipley back in 1925, which we talked about back in Season 2, Episode 12. Now he had the helm of the review and if he was willing, the greatest and most demanding publishing project in the history of the Adventist church up until that point, the Bible commentary. Now, he was willing, and it wasn't enough just to be willing. You had to be able as well, because, folks, writing a book is hard. Serving as editor of the review while managing nearly 50 Adventist scholars and editors, as well as 100 readers, who all of them also have day jobs, to write a multi-volume work over a multi-year period is, is something most people cannot do. You need to be decisive, but you also need to be open-minded. You need to command the respect and confidence, not just of the people you work with, but the church as a whole. 
You need to know how to lead people who know more than you and not be intimidated by that. You need to let the scholars come to their own conclusions while also making sure that their conclusions fit the vision for the project. Nickel estimated that the entire commentary project would take 77,175 hours of work, which if you were putting in eight hours a day, they worked more than that. But if you were going to put in eight hours of work a day, that's about 10,000 eight-hour workdays. Or at that pace, it'd be 27 years by yourself. So you got to think long and hard before you take on a project like this, because you could put all of that work in, all of it. But if you're not careful enough in what gets published, and it's something that maybe irritates a minority of the church, then that project, all that work, 77,000 hours, loses credibility with people, and they won't read it. So there's even no guarantee that even if you can pull this off, that, that anybody will even care. You got to think long and hard about these things before you sign on. You got to be willing, but you also got to be able. And Nickel was able. Now, he recruited three full time editors Don Neufeld, Raymond Cottrell, along with Julia Neufer. When then there were six more part time editors. Now, Cottrell, it should be said, is the one bringing us almost all of the details for this episode. And we're going to talk about that more in just a second. But. Julia, although an assistant editor, not an associate editor like Don and Ray, she was an archaeology graduate who had worked with Lynn Wood and Siegfried Horn. Her task, and one of the greatest achievements in the commentary, was to develop a chronology for the Old Testament. With various kings of Judah and Israel and Assyria reigning, you know, in the seventh year of so-and-so, king of such-and-such, -such, it wasn't always clear what was happening when and in what order things happened. Now, Cottrell was brought in from Pacific Union College, where he had been teaching exegesis. He arrived within weeks of the 1952 Bible Conference reporting for duty, and he would estimate that he would spend about 15,000 hours on the project over the next five years. Don Neufeld brought up the rear, arriving in June 1953. Neufeld was head of the Bible Department at Canadian Union College and was proficient in Hebrew and Greek. Now, side note, I want to return to that thing about how Cottrell is really our only source for this episode and how that is absolutely shocking because 77,000 hours of work and no one can find the paperwork. There should be a mountain of paper somewhere, a mountain, a project of this size in the age before computers where you can have digital files should have tens of thousands of pages, maybe even more, okay? So the fact that I rely so heavily on Cottrell in this episode isn't me just being lazy and not wanting to put in the work. It's truly all I have to work with. And I'm telling you that that is very, 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 very strange. Now, maybe someday we're going to find him. I don't know. Uh, I, I can't conceive of why anybody would have thrown these papers away. But uh, it's it's a very weird thing to have to, uh, to work with that. So Cottrell is going to be our guide for this episode. Anyways, these were the three full-time editors. Like I said, they had six um, part-time editors who were who would stay on for about two months or two years, you know, and, and, and help out as well. So these full-time editors had to work closely with Nickel, and that meant showing up at 4.30 in the morning when Nickel began work. And toward the end, when deadlines were really pressing them, they wanted to get it out, you know, JD wanted to get this thing out by Christmas so we can uh, hit those Christmas sales uh, that meant that they had to work up to 10 minutes before sundown because we're Adventists. We're not going to work on Sabbath, even on a Bible commentary. So they quit 10 minutes before sundown on Friday, and then they resumed again 10 minutes after sundown on Saturday night. So if you're wondering, you know, how long do I got to wait after the sun goes down to make sure I've guarded the edge of the Sabbath? Apparently, the answer is 10 minutes. Anyways, the other editors, some of whom, like I said, just worked for a few months or a few years, Featured some names that might be familiar to you today, if you're familiar with Adventist authors and thinkers. One was Herb Douglas, went on to pen dozens of popular books and championed last generation theology. Another was Leona Running, who was uh, who had briefly served or would briefly serve as a secretary for Roy Anderson. Anderson praised her brilliant mind and said she had a perfect command of French, German, and English. And so Leona Running was studying at Johns Hopkins University with the famous archaeologist William Foxwell Albright. She would later write a biography of her mentor, calling him a 20th century genius. So she was more than qualified 
for the work that she was doing. And at last, the team was together. It, it feels a little bit like a superhero ensemble movie, like Marvel's Avengers or whatever the garbage is that DC puts out, where, where the Nick Fury character has to kind of go around and find the heroes doing ordinary things and bring them together in one place. And, and then they have to meet each other. And maybe there's a little bit of getting to know you in there. And then they have to learn to work together. And so Francis Nickel, what I'm trying to say is Nick Fury, or as we can call him, Nickel Fury. All right, that's not going to catch on, is it? Anyways, Nickel had to go recruit scholars. And, you know, that meant visiting Adventist colleges across North America. He would sit down with them. He'd figure out their areas of expertise and their interests and then assign them a number of pages to write, as well as giving them a deadline. The pay, by the way, in case you were wondering uh, how much they're getting compensated for this, was not great. It was about $1 per page. Now, it's safe to say at that rate that nobody signed on to their project for the money, okay? If you know anything about how long it takes to to write academic work, and again, I mean, they, they softened up, the editor softened up some of the, the, the $10 words and stuff that were they found, but, it, you know, to do quality research, make sure you're not, you're not making any unsupported conclusions, make sure you're checking your sources and, and you know, all these things, a I mean, dollar per page, even back then was just nothing. And, and they didn't do it for the glory either, because to this day, uh, well, I should say this. You'll find the list of, of writers, of contributors in the Bible commentary, but you won't find in there a list of what they actually wrote. And there was a number of reasons why Nickel chose to do it that way. Um, he didn't want it to be about who wrote what. And besides, maybe more importantly, the editors were smoothing over everyone's writing so that the volumes had a consistent style. So you couldn't like read one thing and be like, wow, this is really beautiful. And then you go to the next book and you're like oh this is junk writing you know they, they wanted to smooth it over so it kind of read like one writer wrote the whole thing and because the editors were doing so much work smoothing over language and stuff you know at what point can you say John Doe wrote this commentary on this book right because it really a bunch of people had a hand in each page so you know Cottrell warns us that the final product sometimes reflects the views of the editors more than the views of the writers. And if that seems scandalous to you or strange to you, then I refer you to the Adult Bible Study Guide as Exhibit A, because this is how it still works in some places, all right? However, we do know that Siegfried Horn wrote the most. He wrote 929 pages of the commentary, and we just didn't know which pages, except that decades later, Cottrell gave us a little cheat sheet and from that cheat sheet, we learned that W.E. Reed did Revelation 12 to 16, Graham Maxwell did Romans, M.L. Andreasen did Leviticus and Hebrews, and so on. So he eventually kind of leaked that out. But, you know, it'd be nice to know even more than that. With the team assembled, Nickel gave them some guidelines, all right, some, some principles to operate with. The goal wasn't to establish an official Adventist interpretation on every word of Scripture, nor was it to let individual contributors develop their pet theories. It should be readable also by any church elder, that's who we're writing for, who wants to know more about the Bible. All right, and on and on and on. Nickel gave these guidelines. Just a little side note here for me personally. I think it's interesting how, um, you know, Uriah Smith's list of fundamental beliefs in the 1870s isn't meant to be prescriptive. The church manual isn't meant to be prescripted. The Bible commentary isn't meant to be like, this is what you have to believe about every text in order to be considered Adventist. Like, nobody's writing these prescriptive statements. Like, nobody wants to be the one to be like, this is what we believe, you're going to stick to it. And yet, all of these things just end up functioning that way. So, <laughs> right, I mean, where are the official things that, that, that Adventists need to do? Where are the official statements? You know, and that's the thing that really surprises people about the Bible commentary. This isn't. This was not a general conference voted thing. This is not like, hey, we have reviewed this, we've we've uh, funded this project, we're putting it out there because this represents Avenus thought. This is a review and herald thing. The publishing company, JD, came up with this idea. The review and herald funded this idea and got it out there. So you know the. The general conference, if, if ever there was an objection to something that was written in the, Bible in the Bible commentary, the general conference can say, yeah, we didn't approve that. That's just their project over there. And so, you know, it's like, what is the official Adventist statement on, on things? It's, it's, uh, 
it's just funny how how that works in Adventist history. It's like none of these things are our official view necessarily, but they all become our official view because it's all we've got. You know, it's all we've got. So anyways, you might think that this was relatively smooth sailing once you get the team together. You got the editors, you got the contributors, they got their orders, right? Now go out and do your job. Well, yeah, it wasn't. Cottrell praises Siegfried Horn and Graham Maxwell because their work required very little editing. It's good writing. Others were good scholars, but poor writers. And one writer simply had his secretary copy Albert Barnes's commentary for his entire book, word for word, and submitted that as if that was his commentary. Now, you know, we talk about plagiarism sometimes in the Adventist church. Um, not cool. This, not cool. Uh, but Nichols was chill. Nichols's response was to pay the man for his work because it wasn't much money after all. And then he just simply took the man's work, threw it in the trash, and found somebody else to rewrite that book. Nickel didn't cause drama. He just got stuff done. Another writer's work was three years late, very nearly too late. They were down to uh, down to the wire about whether they could even use it. And so seeing that deadline coming, Nickel quietly asked his editors to find somebody else who could who could pinch hit at the last minute. But alas, the man's work came in a couple of days later, and Cuttrell said it was very much worth the wait. Yet another scholar had a terminal disease, and his work was completely unusable. You know, he tried, he wanted to help uh, his church, but he, he just wasn't up for it. Well, Nickel paid the man, presumably thanked him, and then gave that scholar's assignment to three of his editors to rewrite. In 1955, Nickel felt he had to smooth over some ruffled feathers among the writers by reminding them that, you know, in order to get these seven giant volumes to all read the same, we, we do have to sometimes rewrite portions of your manuscript and choose different words. So don't take it personally, guys. And as I said, the, the commentary was not meant to be the official Avenus word on the Bible, on every verse in the Bible. Sometimes it notes that Avenus have traditionally believed several different things about a particular text. And sometimes the editors did not think some of those things were credible at all, but they still tried to give the reader the option to believe what they wanted to believe. So Cottrell writes, quote, at times the expression Seventh-day Adventists have taught that, or its equivalent, was our ironic way of expressing collective editorial judgment that the interpretation so characterized was not exegetically valid. Accurate exegesis was our primary concern, end quote. So what he's saying is that sometimes, not every time, sometimes when you read in the Bible commentary, Seventh-day Adventists have taught that, that this is kind of a code for we editors and contributors may not agree with this, whatever. But, you know, it's there in Adventist history, and, you know, we think it's wrong, but if you want to believe it, you have the option to believe it. But they're, of course, not going to say it so bluntly. Cottrell tells us that by the time a, a volume of the commentary went to print, 22 pairs of eyes had read every word of every line in the endeavor to make the resulting product as perfect as humanly possible. Okay, It is a testimony to Nichols's efficiency and ruthlessness, because you got to be a little ruthless. I don't mean rude or mean, but you just, you know, you've got to make decisions. And some of these decisions are going are gonna to maybe ruffle some feathers or something, but you, you just got to get this stuff out. And, you know, so it's a testimony to his efficiency and ruthlessness that seven volumes were able to come out over four years with every word being read by 22 different people. I mean, that is a monumental task. Monumental. Now, today, the Adventist Church is in the process of publishing a new commentary, the SDA International Bible Commentary, with the first volume on Genesis having come out in 2016. Maybe you've seen it somewhere. And before COVID, you know, we were being told, I think this project started in 2010 or something, but we were told the entire project was supposed to be finished by 2020. Now, this is, I don't say that to disparage that effort, um, but to illustrate just how hard it is to pull off a project like this. All right. I don't know the details of what's going on with that project or why we only have one volume in six years, um, but it's hard. It's really hard. And not only do editors have to wrestle with the varying quality coming from the writers, but the biblical text itself is a challenge. In Leviticus 11, where the clean and unclean animals are listed, well, I mean, scholars back then, when they were writing this commentary, couldn't positively identify about a third of those animals. So how do you write a commentary on that passage of Scripture when you don't even know what a third of it is, is talking about? 
Or take the story of how Jacob uh, took Laban's speckled and spotted goats and put some kind of branches in the watering troughs of the strong goats, which somehow caused them to give birth to prolific numbers of spotted and speckled uh, offspring. I mean, you know, this this is not a, a unique thing to Avenus. I mean, others have been aware of this problem too. That's not how genetics work, right? Cottrell uh, calls it genetic impossibilities. And then he asks, quote, did God overrule the laws of genetics? You know, like we just don't know how this happened. Was there a, was there a miracle at work here for Jacob? Or, um, you know, I don't know, exceptional fortune? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what was going on. And, and you know, scholars got to, they got to weigh in on these things. They can't just say, I don't know. People expect comments in a commentary. And we're not even talking about the cynical tone of Ecclesiastes or what uh, Cottrell calls the X-rated nature of Song of Solomon. He said that if Song of Solomon was made into a movie, it would be considered pornographic. And then there's the synoptic problems of the gospel, which is an eternal controversy. And the synoptic problem is simply dealing with why the vast majority of Mark is reproduced in Matthew and Luke, sometimes word for word, and whether there was another source that maybe they drew from to get their stories. Cottrell writes, quote, If modern literary documents made use of each other as the synoptic gospels do, we would consider a clear case of gross plagiarism and a valid basis for indicting two of them as infringements of copyright. End quote. Now, the goal here in this podcast isn't to rehash these issues, but to just introduce them to you or perhaps remind you of them that, that there's challenges in the Bible and, and decisions on these issues need to be made in the face of uncertainty. Commentaries often read like the authors are at least pretty certain about everything in the text that, you know, we have an answer in every verse and, and all of that. But sometimes you just don't know and you have to write something. So the commentary projects confidence. I mean, you have these seven stout volumes filled with words and maps and timelines and things like that. And it's like, yeah, we're super confident, but, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not. Now, this was mostly a North American project, though a team did get some feedback from the Aussies on the book of Hebrews. In a hilarious line, Cottrell wrote that this was important because they were, quote, aware of the periodic theological hurricanes that brew in Australia and eventually reach North America, end quote. Folks, I've said it here before. A lot of the trouble in Avenus history came from Australia. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying that to insult the Aussies, because I suspect our Aussie listeners are rather proud of their role in our story. <laughs> no, anyways, another challenge was Ellen White. A scholarly, exegetical interpretation of the Bible is sometimes at odds with Ellen White's more pastoral approach, where sometimes she uses one text in one situation and uses the same text in a different way in another situation, right? And because people have been reading Ellen White for so many decades, it, it kind of became, this is what the Bible says, right? And if most Adventists are treating her writings like a commentary, then they're going to judge this new commentary by the standard of what she wrote, not not how well it it uh, you know it was exegetically constructed, not whether the the scholars who knew Greek and Hebrew did a good job. They're they're basically going to compare it to Ellen White and say, well, Ellen White says something different, so this new commentary must be bunk, right? But we got to keep in mind that. Ellen White was not an exegete. She didn't try to do exegesis. She didn't know Hebrew or Greek. She didn't get visions on her use of every single verse of the Bible. And if this commentary was seen as anti-Ellen White, however, uh, because it interprets some verses differently than she did, then they could just blow up the entire project. So they have to be very careful. Cottrell gives us an example. He says that Ellen White uses Nahum 1.9 to say that affliction would not rise again in the King James, meaning that sin will be defeated and would never return. But of course, Nahum, in the immediate context, isn't saying that at all. He's talking about Assyria being defeated and not coming back. That's the difference, the editors argued, between a homiletical or pastoral reading of the text that can take, you know, some liberties with it, and a strictly exegetical one, which is concerned about what it what it meant in its context to its original readers, and, and including what it might mean to people today. So it's not to say Ellen White is wrong, but you have to, you know, none of these, none of these editors or writers were thinking that they were correcting Ellen White or 
you know, even disagreeing with Ellen White, but they were trying to avoid the perception that they were they were against Ellen White. And that meant treading very, very, very carefully. You know, the exegetical approach has to be a little bit more conservative than the homiletical approach. You know, when you're preaching, sometimes if you're not doing an exegetical sermon, you have certain liberties with the text that are not necessarily wrong, but you can make application, as Ellen White did, in ways you can't if you're if you're doing Bible scholarship. The team also had to produce an index. So as they were writing, they were noting topics that come up, oh, remnant, for instance, or Sabbath or whatever. And so they would put all, put the on an index card, they would say, okay, so-and-so dealt with Sabbath on page 10, I'm just saying. Uh, and then so-and-so dealt with it in volume two on page 400, and then so-and-so, you know, right? So they had to kind of keep track of when some of these key themes were appearing. There was no searching the, the PDF in finding every use of the word Sabbath, right? You have to do this manually. But the problem is nobody in the editorial office had any experience whatsoever in how to index things. Now, you may be thinking, well, you just described it, Matthew. You just got to write things down. Yeah, but you're, you're going to, by the time you get done with seven volumes, you're talking about thousands and thousands of index cards. You got to find a way to organize those in a way where you can access them when you need to very, very quickly. I mean, if something takes an extra five minutes because you have a poor system, that five minutes adds up when you need to keep returning to these cards to, to update them uh, maybe dozens of times a day for years. So this was an important thing for them to figure out. How did they figure out indexing? Well, Nickel sent Julia Neufer to the Catholic University of America <laughs> to learn about indexing. <laughs> and so, you know, there's thousands of index cards on any topic the reader might be interested in. And that just leads us to wonder, is the SDA Bible Commentary Index therefore under a Catholic influence? I will leave that for you to decide. Now, I want to get to the promised story about Florida. We hinted at that last time. Cottrell noted that Nickel was, quote, goading himself beyond mercy and insisted that everyone who worked with him go and do likewise, <laughs> end quote, <laughs> which is a nice way to say the boss was driving everyone crazy. Nickel, Cottrell says, quote, lived three lives during his 69 years, end quote, and that he was quick on his feet. Only two times did Cottrell ever see him speechless and this is a story about one of those times. Now, the Nichols were in Florida at one point. They were sent there by their doctors for eight weeks just to recover. They were driving. They were wound up too tight. Doctor says, get down there. Spend eight weeks down there. No work. Okay, this is in 1855. No work. Don't let anyone bother you. You know, you guys need some R&R. &R. And, you know, let's be honest. When when you're the editor of the review and man in the in the head of this Bible commentary project, how likely do you think it is that anybody is going to not do any work whatsoever for eight weeks? But nevertheless, Nickel tried, and he kept his location secret from everyone in Tacoma Park. Couldn't tell them where he was going in Florida. They just knew he was going to Florida because he didn't trust them, because that's how people who are all workaholics are. Uh, they're not going to give you any peace. So Cottrell writes, quote, no one in Tacoma Park knew his whereabouts, except that he was somewhere in sun-drenched Florida. He would call occasionally and crack his taskmaster's lash by long distance, but we could never call him. We were on our own, end quote. Now, let's get into the story here. I can't improve on Cottrell's writing, so I'm just going to quote him at length here because it's really good. All right, quote, after several weeks of relative solitude, we, meaning Don and Merwin Thurber, who was a chief book editor, and I plotted to locate and surprise Elder Nickel. As we departed one snowy Thursday at twilight and drove in shifts all night long, we knew nothing more than that they were somewhere in Florida. Well, arriving in Orlando, Winter Haven, and Avon Park, erstwhile Nickel hideouts, we found no one who had seen him. Then word leaked out. A phone call to Tacoma Park revealed that Nichols' secretary, who was in on our little plot, had received a postcard from Mrs. Nickel with a picture of their Tampa motel. We headed for Tampa in hot pursuit, only to find the Nichols out for the day. But they were still registered at that little motel on the fringe of town. After a dip in the warm waters of the Gulf off Treasure Island, we returned to the motel where a familiar car with a Maryland license plates was parked. Armed with our camera, we knocked, 
and as our victim opened the door, we shot point blank, and in the ro rosette rays of the setting sun, we, we caught the look of consternation we were looking for. In a sepulchral tone, there we go, he exclaimed, By the beard of the prophet, what are you fellows doing here? <laughs> for at least 15 minutes, Nickel himself remained speechless, trying by extrasensory perception to figure out how we had been able to follow him to his lair. Finally, he blurted out in a mock self-defense, I know how you found out. You plowed my heifer, end quote. Now, now, now in Nichols' defense, that phrase does come from the Bible, okay? And it was, it was definitely a different age than the one that we live in. But that's about as far as I dare go in defending a man who insinuates that his wife is a heifer, okay? Also, where is this picture? Somebody find me this picture of Nickel opening his door and having the living daylight scared out of him. <laughs> the trio of editors did eventually return back to Washington, but not before Nickel berated them for all traveling together in one car. Nickel was not concerned, Cottrell explains, quote, so much for our sakes as that of the commentary. What would happen if we were all killed in an accident? End quote. <laughs> Nickel sounds like a great great person to work with <laughs> on another occasion after they after they returned and some time had passed um, it was going to be Nichols's 60th birthday so Cottrell invented a fake radio broadcast that made it sound like Nickel was being praised on the public airwaves as, as some kind of celebrity in Washington right like we want to welcome our celebrated friend you know FD Nickel blah 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 you know that kind of thing and so they had it pre-recorded and uh, once again, it, you know, they were talking in the office and somebody turned on that radio and it started playing. And Nickel Cottrell says, was absolutely speechless as he was trying to figure out why a radio broadcast would be wishing him happy birthday like he was some kind of celebrity in Washington. Right. So those are the two times that Cottrell says he ever saw Nickel speechless. And I'm sure there were probably more pranks that were pulled. Uh, sometimes I think when you're in a high stress environment where everyone's having to be super productive, You've got to find some ways to, to let the steam out, right? Anyways, the SDA Bible commentary was a success, and there are many reasons for that. It was in no small part due to the fact that the editors liked and respected each other. They got along. They got along. And yes, it was also the result of a ton of hard work. But as Cottrell credits, it was also due to the fact that there was a climate of theological openness among Adventists at the time. You know, when you think about it, it, it seems like we do go through theological moods when uh, we feel threatened, either by a hostile culture, right, like during the fundamentalist days, um, or some particular heresy is making the rounds, maybe, you know, with DM Can Riot or, or whatever. People tend to, to close up, and they get suspicious, and they begin to interpret things in less charitable ways. And the commentary doubtlessly could not have survived in that kind of climate. There had to be some trust and goodwill and, you know, willingness to, to you know, accept that sometimes the commentary gave you a couple different options. You know, it wasn't dogmatic. It wasn't, you know, if you had like the Des Ford thing going on, which was going to happen in the 80s and 70s, um, if that was going on when the commentary was written, right, what are people going to do? They're going to grab this thing and they're going to go to Daniel 8 and they're going to like it. Did it side with Ford or did it side against Ford, right? And they're going to look at the commentary based on what side it chose. And you can't write a commentary under those conditions. It's, you know, it can't be about choosing sides. And, and so it was written in this kind of more open climate. And Cottrell gives that credit for the fact that it was successful. All right. And, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning is a kind of a an aside that goes along with that. And that we're we're often more influenced by our climate than we think. Or to put it another way, we're not always as theologically objective as we imagine. Now credit is also due to the Review and Herald Publishing Association, which bet I, I would say probably by the end of the project close to a million dollars on it. That was a huge, huge sum for that day, especially for a project that Avenus had never attempted before weren't sure if membership would even appreciate it or want it. It took full, that is the Review and Herald, took full in, uh, financial and theological responsibility for the commentary because, like I said, the commentary was not an official theological project for the church. And again, this trust in the church uh, or this trust of the church to invest in a project like this reflects the climate, both cultural, uh, theological, 
right? There's no, there's no fights going on, uh, but also economic. Things had to be going well for a publishing association to drop close to a million dollars on a project like this. And, um, you know, the church trusted its scholars. It didn't feel threatened by whatever it is they might conclude when they study these things. The commentary was also ecumenical in a, in a way, like a, in an intra-Adventist way. Adventists have appealed to the commentary to affirm some Adventist position on some controverted point, but Nickel made sure that the commentary was what he called mainstream. The commentary, in some ways, did not represent advanced Adventist thought in every issue, where something might be, you know, if a scholar thought, oh, I think uh, this is the right interpretation of this passage, but but where Nickel or somebody said, you know what, that's that's just going to stir people up. I don't think the people are ready to consider that yet. Then the commentary would present several options. They would, or or they would just kind of say, we're going to go with the traditional reading of this text. Even if, you know, they, they again, they would present several options, even if some of the elders or elders, editors strongly believed one of those options was wrong. And as Nickel had to constantly remind his editors, this is not the place to hash out controversial issues. This is the place to present views that are historically rooted and will appeal to as many Adventists as possible. And I, I think that's an underappreciated thing, right? This is, this is not a book that's designed to be cutting edge. And some people can look at it and say, well, this is the latest scholarship on every subject. It wasn't. In some ways, it was. On some other issues, they judged that the church wasn't ready for the latest scholarship on an issue. And so they just kind of retreated to a, a previously held position because it, would, it was the politically savvy move to make. It isn't going to stir up controversy. And sometimes it was worth stirring up controversy, I suppose, and, and many times it would not be. Cottrell said, quote, The 1952 Bible Conference opened the door to a 15-year climate of openness and freedom to study the Bible objectively rather than apologetically. Cottrell said that, quote, The 1952 Bible Conference opened the door to a 15-year climate of openness and freedom to study the Bible objectively rather than apologetically during which the church made rapid progress in its understanding of the Scripture. Elder Nickel often commented that, except for the 1952 Bible Conference, it would not have been possible to produce the commentary because the editors could not have operated with sufficient freedom to make it objective and therefore worthwhile, end quote. Taking the middle road doesn't mean that the editors were wishy-washy. Cottrell is clear that the lasting influence of the commentary is that it sought to get rid of the proof texting method that Avenus had used since the beginning, right? Here's one text, and it says this, regardless of whether the context would, you know, make sense or not to use it this way. So I'm just going to go ahead and use it this way. You know, and he, he brings up some, some uh, examples, uh, like the day for the year text, like, you know, in Ezekiel or whatever. I think there's one in Ezekiel and one in Numbers, where God's like, I've appointed you a day for each year. And Adventists, of course, will take that and they'll say, well, see, there you go. Anytime I need a prophecy to be, to you know, that says days to equal years, I'm just going to use this text, regardless of what that verse actually meant in Numbers or Ezekiel, if I'm getting that right. Um, you know, and the commentary was like, no, the context determines the meaning. The context matters. Uh, they weren't against the day for year principle, mind you, okay? They were just against proof texting as a way of, of, uh, of arriving at that conclusion. The, the, the commentary forced readers to consider context, always context, as determining the meaning of the text. We realized, Cottrell wrote, quote, that some church members used to the dogmatic proof text approach would feel uncomfortable and threatened by the openness of the commentary. But we believe that in time, the church would come to appreciate the virtues of openness and that our endeavor to be faithful to the text of Scripture would have a corrective effect, end quote. So, the commentary really is a literary monument to the middle road. And again, that doesn't mean wishy-washy. That doesn't mean, you know, too afraid to take a stand. They, they did take a stand. They're like, we're, we're going to try to steer this thing so it, it ends proof texting in the Adventist church. But it was, it, was, it was aimed at having a broad appeal. Like, we're going to choose our battles that we're going to fight here and not, not just be like, everything here we, is, is modern as of 1953 or 1957. Uh, they, they were careful. They were trying to be careful in choosing this, in, in finding some broad appeal for their project. Now, there may be a time for being polemical, of course, and taking a hard stand on an issue. But if that's true, then there must also be a time for just allowing diversity of belief. 
J.D. originally hoped that 5,000 sets would sell by 1960. Instead, it wasn't 5,000 sets that were sold, but 23,000 sets were pre-ordered. Okay, I want you to think about the latest and greatest Adventist books that uh, that come out in a, an ABC magazine or whatever it is that alerts you to latest Adventist books. Like, when do people pre-order a, a book? 23,000, not just like volumes, but sets of seven volumes that cost hundreds of dollars. Um, I mean, they did later on, right? In, in 1980s, 90s, 2000s, uh, adjusted for inflation. Now, it, it sold like crazy. And by 1984, 83,000 sets were on hands of churches and members, which is why you can go to many old Adventist churches and you still see them there on the bookshelf. You'll still see them in the homes of members. I don't know how often they read them anymore, but they're there because they were bought, like, I mean, tens of thousands of them. I wouldn't be surprised if they sold uh, well into the hundreds of thousands. And again, that's a big feat when you're talking about, you know, not individual books per se, but but sets of seven books. And later on, of course, there's like 12 volumes in it. Uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of paper to move, right? So it, that seems to be in some way a vindication of their middle road approach. But the age of Camelot would not last. Before the final volume of the commentary saw the light of day, another unofficial project that Raymond Cottrell was involved in was caught up in controversy. And of course, my friends, I'm talking about the most controversial book in Avenus history, Questions on Doctrine. We're going to talk about that one next time. <music> Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.